Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Through her book, Zupiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health, I have had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. And now I'm going to meet her in audio as opposed to in person because she's in California. And as you all know, I'm on the East Coast. She is an important cardiologist at UCLA, which has now been renamed the David Geffen UCLA Department because David is so generous and has spread his wealth in important places. And Barbara is an amazing writer and an amazing thinker. And I'm going to just tell you something that might sound absurd to you. Dr. Natterson Horowitz, I think you should win a genius prize, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. This book is so incredible. The connections you make on so many levels are just, you refer to a Norwegian physician at the, later in the book as having a ubiquitous moment, and I just had so many ubiquitous moments in this wonderful book, Zubiquity. I just, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have one's mind opened when all of our minds are not very as open as they might be. Did you, I, I think you're someone who's a mind opener. Is that a crazy idea? That that is. I don't know if it's a crazy idea, but that is the most generous introduction I've ever gotten. So thank you. That's you're very incredibly welcome. Kind. I, I want to just um, tweak a little bit of, of since since. Um, so right now I'm actually on the East Coast, and while yes, I've been a professor at UCLA for a couple of decades. Uh, David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA for a couple of decades. I also um, am a faculty member at Harvard where I teach a course uh, basically on ubiquity and comparative medicine to undergraduates and to some med students. And right now we're, we're literally into the second month of that, uh, of that course. So I'm sitting here in Cambridge. Oh, nice. Uh, even though, yes, my family and, and dog Hadley are, are back home in Los Angeles. Well, it's very lovely that you share yourself so much because the other hat you wear in L.A. is that you're a, a, you also help out at the zoo when there are cardiac problems with unusual animals or unusual heart problems. And, I, and that seems to be what inspired your realization of the bridge between humans and animals and what can be learned 
both in terms of health and emotional wellness and many different things. How did they tap you? Are there, there, there are veterinary cardiologists. So how did you get to be there and face that darling little animal that you ba- face in the beginning of the book? I think I can't pronounce the name of it properly. <laughs> yeah, a Spitzbuben, a, a, a t- an Emperor Tamarin. Well, yeah, exactly. As as you say, there are you know board certified veterinary cardiologists who are uh, who are phenomenally talented and take great care of their animal patients. Um, but it turns out at zoos, um, you know, across this country and in some other countries as well, when there are cardiovascular issues in great apes, so in gorillas or orangs or orangutans or you know bonobos or chimps. Um, Sometimes zoo veterinarians will reach out to human um, medical centers, you know, typically academic centers, for uh, cardiologists who have expertise in cardiac imaging. And so I just happened to be the lucky one to be tapped in Los Angeles back in 2005. So um, it was, I mean, it was serendipitous because it, it reactivated um, a, a longstanding interest that I'd had in uh, evolutionary biology, but it... Um, it was, it's not that unusual in a sense, but it, it certainly was um, an unbelievable opportunity for me. I think it wound up to be an unusual opportunity for the rest of us because I didn't quite know what to expect in Zubiquity. Part of me thought, oh, it's going to be how zoonotic diseases pass and, oh, gee, COVID came from monkeys maybe or, you know, bats or some, you know, lab work in China. Whether or not that's true, I was kind of expecting that, you know, avian flu, things that go between species. It isn't that at all. It's your realization, and, and that's why I say a genius award, not mine to give. I'm not on the board of the MacArthur Award, so never mind. But it's the idea of breaking the way we think of things, breaking it apart and breaking it down. And the hierarchy of how people look at each other as well as how they look at animals is something that you write about earlier in the book. And I found that particularly interesting, how veterinarians are seen as less than, and that specialists in human or veterinary medicine are seen as better than. And once you start pointing that out to us, you also, I think, sort of open the way for us to see that the events that happen to animals physically slash emotionally are exactly similar to those that can happen to people. But you also talk so much historically about the resistance to that and the few great thinkers over time way back to way back that saw those connections and were kind of poo-pooed. Are you seen as that in the in the modern day, as that person who's a great forward thinker or someone who's mixing apples and oranges? Wow, that's a that's a wonderful question. It's very rich and and actually taps into um, many of the themes that I've been thinking about and writing about and actually um, sharing with with my students um, this past week. So um, first of all, yeah, I, your point about zoonotic infections uh, is, is spot on because when I graduated from medical school back in 1987, okay, if you had asked me then, you know, what is the connection between human and animal health, I would have quickly and confidently um, presented zoonotic infections, so the pathogens that pass back and forth between human and animal populations, um, that and the role of animals in laboratory investigation 
I would have pointed to those two as the sort of singular and holistic, um, you know, response to that. That that is how human and animal health are connected. Right. Period. End of sentence. Right. And what the experience, um, and by the way, I have to say that as I share this recently, I've been reflecting on, it's been over 10 years since this all happened. And um, it's, it's almost embarrassing to look back and um, recognize and then share my um, lack of awareness, that's the euphemism for ignorance <laughs> that I had about all the other non-zoonotic connections. But when I started to go um, first to the zoo and then in many other veterinary settings and um, learn about, you know, a, a case of metastatic breast cancer or a case of um, a form of heart failure that um, is, has become the leading cause of heart failure in women or, you know, even psychiatric illnesses or mm -hmm. what veterinarians would call mm -hmm. biobehavioral disturbances. You know, all of those things back then, 2005, 2006, 2007, for me were, were somehow disruptive of some kind of way in which um, I, uh, I understood medical illness. And the book Zubiquity, you know, the original subtitle was Redefining the Boundaries of Human Medicine. Oh. Because what, what I and Catherine Bowers, who was my um, you know, partner in this research and co-author, what we really began to see was that the overlap between the, the diseases, the pathologies, just the vulnerabilities, the health vulnerabilities, both physical and um, you know, behavioral, uh, between human and non-human animals, were, it was vastly overlapping. And yet, and yet, when um, I learned none of that in my formal and medical education, and when I would share this information with colleagues of mine who were breast cancer specialists, for example, when I would share a case of metastatic breast cancer in a lion mm -hmm. um, with, a, a, you know, or talk about melanoma in a dog or, or, um, you know, atrial fibrillation, um, you know, in a, you know, whatever it happened to be a horse. Right. When I would share this information, which I was, I was gaining both as a consultant at, at, you know, the zoo, but also I was really getting interested in, in the world of veterinary medicine and all of the, my professional doppelgangers that were, um, that were so knowledgeable that I could learn from. But my, my human colleagues back at, at UCLA, who are people I respect tremendously, this was news to them. So the, the series of, of kind of light bulbs um, were, there were lots and lots of them. Mm -hmm. One was just, why is it that these people who are so knowledgeable and who are so fully dedicated to understanding everything they possibly can about these pathologies in order to help their human patients, you know, why is there this, this gap of knowledge? Why, you know, what's going on? And um, there are a lot of reasons, and many of them are historical and cultural but I think it all kind of boils down to um, this very long tradition in medicine of, of this long anthropocentric tradition. It's, it's human exceptionalism. Yes. And in the field of medicine, human exceptionalism takes the form of all of these unexamined assumptions about uniqueness of many, many problems to our species. So I think that, that human exceptionalism is the blindfold, was the blindfold, and continues to be a blindfold, although I consider my life's work to help peel that blindfold off my medical colleagues. But I think that has been a blindfold which has prevented physicians you know, and, and other human health professionals, you know, psychotherapists, dentists, not just physicians, That's nurses, right. but has prevented us from recognizing connections across species that if we did see them would allow us to 
uh, you know, generate novel hypotheses and, and come up with, you know, more effective solutions. So I think it all kind of circles back to this medical form of human exceptionalism. That's exactly what I thought. And there was, there's a great line that I actually had heard before, but I'd forgotten um, in, in terms of uh, a kind of a joke, apparently, in the veterinary field. I have a lot of veterinary friends. I have a lot of human doctor friends, too, but a lot of veterinarian friends now after all these years in the, in the pet world. And they, they say, yeah, well, a, a human doctor is basically a veterinarian that only that only treats one species. I just thought that was so great. It's like, yeah, one species. We got it all, guys. We do the little and the large and everything that flies and swims and, and, and canters. I, I think that this, this chapter that's the most amazing, and if somebody read nothing but the chapter, Scared to Death, it pulls together all of your ideas and all of your thinking. And in two or three different ways, it could save countless lives, an incredible amount of heartbreak. And I do mean heartbreak, not as a pun. I think that mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure that we talk about SIDS, first of all, because sudden infant death syndrome is one of the most devastating things that anybody can live through. And I didn't know, but you point out that it's the leading cause of death between a month and a year old in America and maybe even worldwide. And supposedly it's not understood. There's Everyone's got, oh, it, they sh- the baby shouldn't be face down. But you bring together so many of the other ideas that you have in the book based on animals and what happens when they are not allowed free movement or the ability to escape, as well as when heart rate lowers. And the whole idea that a heart rate lowering to the point that it stops and what could be done to understand that, it's your understanding of the veterinary field, you're delving into it, that put together these this really ubiquitous moment, as you call it, um, that a baby being face down and swaddled so it can't move, which is maybe not the very best for the reasons that people do it without quite knowing, and having a startling moment, just a startling sound, and how that can kill a baby. Did, didn't it, when you put all those together, didn't you think, oh my God, I'm going to save all these babies? I mean, I'm like, everyone needs to read this, pediatricians, moms and dads, grandparents, right? Isn't that how you felt when you put it all together? So, um, you know, what, what you're describing is this process that now is, is in the decade of, of, um, of pivoting in my life from, uh, from my work as a full-time clinical cardiologist and professor of medicine to really exploring the natural world um, as a source of, of insights, the animal world particularly, but the, the larger natural world um, for insights into human health. And, and it really, if you kind of, if you make it very simple, you say, well, well why, why do we share this, this, so many of these connections, these health connections with other animals? And the answer, of course, is our shared, our shared ancestry, our shared evolutionary history as, as animals on the planet. And so what I do now is I, 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 I am, my courses are really, are, are called evolutionary medicine, but I apply um, a series of, of lenses that use different um, evolutionary ideas and techniques to kind of try to understand something in human medicine that otherwise seems very paradoxical or mysterious. Yes. Um, so it turns out, and SIDS is, is one, but there's, a, there's an example of a, a more common um, condition that we see in humans, um, which is when people sometimes when they're scared, when they're having their blood drawn, for example, they may right. faint. 
Mm-hmm. And, and what happens um, from a physiologic perspective, their heart rate is, there's a, a series of, of steps that happen in the brain and the heart and certain pressure receptors, but basically the heart starts to slow down in response to fear instead of speeding up, right? So we have said in the past, ah, well, this response, this is, this is paradoxical. And we say it's paradoxical because everybody thinks, okay, fear equals fight flight, right. equals an accelerated heart rate. But in this condition, the heart rate slows. And when the heart rate slows, that means not enough blood can make it to the brain. And then you have fainting. So, um, what I do is I say, all right, let's start with this, this quote-unquote so-called paradoxical problem. This, you know, 15-year-old is going to get his blood drawn and he faints, right? That's not a good thing if he knocks his head or if he falls down the stairs. That's bad. But let's ask, why is it that, that our species has this autonomic physiology, this, this physiology that under certain conditions can cause hearts, hearts to slow? Um, so, so much so that there is an, even a faint, like what, what, why is that? And then we start to get into some really interesting, um, sort of scientific, also, uh, historical and then even philosophical kinds of questions. So we know that, um, you know, our species is, is pretty young, right? Our homo right. sapiens appeared on earth between, you know, t- about 250,000 years ago, something like that. We know that our, our common ancestor with the chimpanzee is six to seven million years. Um, and we know that if we start to look leftward on the evolutionary timeline, we're going back, you know, over 100, 150, almost 200 million years, and we're still looking at our common mammalian ancestor. And those animals, right, they share a heck of a lot of this, this physiology I call autonomic physiology. You know, it's the sympathetic right. and the parasympathetic nervous system. And so... It turns out that we humans, this, our, this young species that we are a member of, we walk around with a fair amount of autonomic physiology that may be maladaptive. That is, it, it's not helpful to us in modern life, right? But it provided so much survival benefit for our animal ancestors that it remains conserved. And so even though it seems as though it's paradoxical, maybe in our species it's not helping, but it's not actually paradoxical. It's, it has been adaptive, fitness-enhancing, survival-enhancing for animal ancestors. And so what I start to do is I start to create these taxonomies, these, these lists of other species in which this occurs, this slowing of the heart rate in response to fear. And from that, I then build these phylogenies, you know, the, the, the models, these like family tree-like models that evolutionary biologists use to show the relationship between you know, animals and their characteristics. And then the fun begins. Then I look at the patterns of these phylogenies and I look at, at these, these animals that are living, you know, these are extant species. And I look at their life histories and what are their challenges? What, what are the threats to their lives? Where, you know, what does their physiology need to be like to enhance survival, to enhance reproduction? And I then begin to develop these hypotheses. And what it turns out is when it comes to the heart rate slowing in response to fear, there are many, many examples um, of fish, of reptiles, of birds, and of non-human mammals um, where a heart rate slowing leads to immobility. It's called tonic immobility. It's essentially, it forces the animal to be very, very still. And stillness in the wild can be a very effective anti-predation strategy. Right. So 
as these connections, um, and there's many ways in which these connections can be made, you know, you can do it um, at the level of the pathways themselves. And, but ultimately, and, and what's just so joyful about what I do, what I, what I love is that these days there's so much video of wildlife in a way that 10 years ago it didn't exist and even five years ago. But um, there are example after example of um, shorebirds who, are, who have tonic immobility that allows them to evade predation, you know, penguins, antelope. And so as I look at this animal video, I, could, I connect it to the physiology and then go back to the phylogeny and finally go back to that 15-year-old whose heart rate has slowed in response to fear all of a sudden, there's this continuity across evolutionary time, across, you know, autonomic physiology that, that connects, you know, a fearful animal, uh, you know, on, a, on a, the edge of a glacier in Antarctica, peng, a penguin, and a 15-year-old who's at a blood drive. Exactly. And, um, <laughs> and, and what's wonderful about the book, and we have run out of time, is that there's so many wonderful examples that you describe so well, not just about fear-based sudden death in various animals, but broken heart syndrome. So many things that have to do with the heart that, and, and, and old wives' tales and things that people have heard, but is it true? And, and at one point you even say, well, if you believe in voodoo death, I'm like, really? I, that's a thing? Barbara, we have run out of time, but this book is so rich with anecdotes and stories and examples of many ways in which animals are extraordinary and shed light on us, and I guess maybe vice versa. I, I just I hope that as many people as possible, whether you have dogs or cats or not, is irrelevant to this book. This book is about us and the whole world at the same time, animal world. Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health by Barbara Natterson Horowitz and Catherine Bowers. It's amazing. We've only scratched just the surface. I hope you will get the book and delve into it yourselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Natterson Horowitz. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle, which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2 and will listen to other episodes sometime soon. <laughs>